This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Van Fleet, who is a nutrition scientist and metabolomics expert at the Center of Human Nutrition Studies for Utah State University. Stephen's research is performed at the nexus of agriculture and human health. He routinely collaborates with farmers, ecologists, and agricultural scientists to study critical linkages between sustainable agriculture, nutrient density of food, and human health. And today, some of the things he will say will shock you. They sure shocked me. So let's dive in. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Exciting podcast today. We're here in person with Stefan Von Fleet, who I've talked to before but did not record. So excited to dive into some topics on what you're researching again, Stefan. How's it going? Good, good. Good to uh, be here and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, Stefan's assistant professor of nutrition at Utah State University. He's kind of made ripples in the the beef meat community recently because he's doing a lot of great research on metabolomics of meat and you know grain fed versus grass fed which we're definitely going to dive into but yeah maybe first we just kind of dive into your background your introduction how did you get interested in these topics i know you're you're from the netherlands you know netherlands are uh, notorious for you know being very tall, healthy, high animal food consumption in the diet. So there's a lot of correlative data out there that suggests, you know, that's the reason. Um, But yeah, what was kind of your childhood in regards to diet and how did you get interested in these topics? It was uh, dairy for breakfast, lunch and dinner. That uh, that did it. Now, yeah, I grew up in the Netherlands, uh, just outside of Rotterdam, which is a large port city. So I grew up in what you would call a suburb here. So a lot of yeah, agricultural lands around there. So I didn't grow up on a farm, but it was very common growing up in the Netherlands to you know, go to farmers markets or source your foods from farmers directly. You know, it was very easy for us, for instance, to access uh, things like uh, like fresh milk from uh, from nearby dairies, and uh, we have a big cheese culture. So I was always interested from early on. You know, just growing up in that, it's like, okay, how do different farming practices impact? Uh, food nutritional quality. So I, I had an interest in that. And how I really got into the field of nutrition was from lifting weights. When I was in my teens, I got into lifting weights and you know, nutrition for performance. I kind of grew into more an interest in uh, health overall. And as I progressed through my career, you know, when I got more independence in my career too, after my PhD, again, I started to, to pursue this question. And really there was like sort of a, a game changing moment that I remember. I got a call one day from uh, Dr. Fred Provenza, who is a, an ecologist and a colleague of him, uh, Dr. Scott Kronberg, who is at the USDA. And they called me, I think it was like on a random January 2019, and they said, uh, you know, we're looking to work with a, um, a human nutrition scientist on some of these questions. We spend our entire life in like grazing research, animal health, uh, ecology. We never really made the bridge to human nutrition. And I was always interested in this, but I didn't really think there was like, you know, a lot of research to be gained in this. I didn't really think about like, oh, you know, there's a lot of funding or something in this or interest. Turns out there is a lot of interest in that. And so three years ago or almost four years ago now, I really started to pursue this work in linking um, 
animal production systems, soil health, plant diversity, to food nutritional composition and human health. Really fascinated with some of the research you've done, especially with amino acids and the differences in grain-fed and grass-fed meat. And then, hint, hint, there's going to be a bit more nuance there than you might think between where they where these animals fed as well, which is really interesting. But I kind of want to go at more of a high level at the beginning. And like clearly you're into the idea of like animal-based diets, like animal foods being nutrient-dense, all these things. I'm actually curious, though, going back even further, how uh, – how much are you aware of like, has anything changed where you're from originally in the Netherlands has, has plant-based for lack of a better word, propaganda, forgive me for lack of the better word, but how is, how has any of that stuff changed since you were growing up and the way you grew up eating? Has that changed at all? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of a global thing, right? And, uh, you know, in the Netherlands, we certainly have our share of problems, especially at the, at the moment with big farmer protests, right? Where you're trying to clamp down on uh, uh, agriculture. And, and I have mixed feelings about this because on one hand, what the Dutch government is supporting is sort of the agroecology that we always talk about, right? It's like, you know, adaptive grazing, integrated crop livestock systems or nature-based solutions to farming. So that is something that the Dutch government's certainly supporting, but you're also working with, with farmers directly and people directly, right? If you tell them, 15, 20 years ago, I was like, oh, you need to be very efficient, uh, have animals in barns and, and provide them with feed. And now all of a sudden you're telling us, like, put them back on the land, right? And, and this just happens very quickly. So there is that, that issue and also just, you know, decreasing the herd. Um, when I grew up in the Netherlands, that was not as much of a thing. Um, you know, we still like, we're still a dairy culture, cheese culture, and I think we'll always remain like that. And even if you look at it sort of from, you know, the population perspective, the consumer perspective. Recently, the Farmers Party became the biggest party. And they are saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're clamping down on farmers. And then meanwhile, our airport is expanding and buying up farmland so it can stay within their emissions, right? And so I think how the Dutch government handled this is like really clamping down on farmers first. It's kind of been a miscalculation because, you know, we, we have to eat before we fly. Um, so... Yeah, certainly there's more of an, an, an interest in, in plant-based diets, but it, I think it's more of also a top-down thing coming uh, from uh, from the government. And and again, it's like, I think it would be good if we increased our whole food consumption, our you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. But yeah, that is, a, I think, a different discussion than uh, trying to replace animal-sourced foods, which can be very nutrient-dense by plant-based alternatives that may not provide or will not provide similar nutrients, at least if you look at the complexity of these food sources. Yeah. So let's get that into that a little bit. So why is it difficult to replace whole animal foods with plant-based manufactured alternatives like Beyond Burger yeah. from well, a nutrition standpoint? Yeah. From a nutrition standpoint, well, it is a very simplified approach to nutrition. So if you look at a USDA or even let's take a step back and look at a label of like a plant-based meal alternative or beef, right? You, you see protein on there, total fat, carbohydrate content, and a handful of vitamins and minerals. Now there's a risk in that you can convince yourself that's all that food contains. But foods contain thousands of biochemicals, the vast majority of which do not appear on nutrition facts panels, but they can impact our health. And these are some various, you know, bioactive compounds, amino acids, peptides, um, 
phytochemicals, individual fatty acids. So these are all uh, major differences. And we, we did some profiling of, uh, of an impossible burger and, and grass-fed beef, which are both, uh, at least for a consumer, being marketed as more um, sustainable and healthier, mm -hmm. right? And they're kind of in the, in the same price point too, although I think an impossible burger is still more expensive. And we profiled them looking at several hundred compounds in there, and we found a 90% difference in metabolite abundance. And so in the nutritional compounds, but if you look at their nutrition facts panel, they look very similar, similar amount of protein, similar amount of fat, the impossible burger has been fortified with various vitamins and minerals, but food is much more than that. And we're still scratching the surface on that. And so that's always the thing too, is like we studied maybe the thousands, 1500 compounds. It is estimated that food sources probably contain 40, 50, 70,000 compounds maybe even more than that. Yeah. So, and that foundationally what you're studying is what metabolomics is, right? And you're saying like 90% higher downstream metabolites, right? Like what does that exactly mean? And can you just give the listeners maybe like a, yeah, 101 on metabolomics? Because yeah, right. I'm just happy when I say the, the word correctly. And I know, you know, you guys are just scratching the surface. So without stumbling over yeah. metabolomics. Yeah. We've talked enough, I guess, for yeah. that to be. No, so the, the word metabolomics is basically the study of metabolites. Mm -hmm. Metabolites are intermediates of end products of metabolism, be it the metabolism of soil bacteria, plants, animals, humans. Now, many of these metabolites, especially in the context of a plant or an animal, can serve as nutrients to us. So not uh, all metabolites are uh, per se nutrients, but all nutrients are metabolites. So using metabolomics, we can study a large number of compounds in, 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 in fruits. And that is really the beauty of it. And we use what we use is, is mass spec based techniques. And they're also used, for instance, drug testing of athletes. It's like you can get very small, uh, or you can measure something very precisely in food sources. So what we do is we use it for vitamins, minerals, uh, fatty acids, amino acids, and maybe with more traditional analysis, you are only able to maybe, you know, study one compound in, in a, at a time, but we're able to study several hundred, or if we really go crazy, you know, over a thousand compounds in a single run in a single food source. And by using that uh, type of approach, we're really able to look at the complexity of foods. And there you can clearly see that, you know, a carrot isn't a carrot isn't a carrot. And an impossible burger is not beef when you take into account this large number. So when I talk about the difference of 90% in metabolite abundance, it, it means that we studied, I think, about over 200 compounds in that work, that the amount that was in there in either the grass-fed beef or the Impossible Burger in these compounds, uh, there was a 90% difference. But what we found was is that about, I think it was about 40% or 36% or so of compounds were not found in either source. So they were completely absent in either grass-fed beef or the Impossible mm -hmm. Burger. So, but then for the other compounds, let's say if you look at certain vitamins or minerals or other antioxidants, they may have been twice as high in Impossible Burger or twice as high in uh, grass-fed beef. But other compounds such as taurine or anserine, these are compounds, amino acid compounds that have an important effect for our brain health. Um, those we know only occur in animal source foods or almost exclusively in animal source foods. Uh, 
And those are not found in an impossible burger. But on the other hand, in an impossible burger, you can find certain soraceflavones or other phenolics that you cannot find in beef. So when you look at this question, oftentimes of like, should we be eating an impossible burger or, 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 or beef? I mean, it's, you know, it's a completely different food source. So I, I sometimes jokingly say, if you go to a fast food outlet, which I don't think you should eat to begin with, is, you know, order an impossible burger and beef or just eat beef and some vegetables on the side. Man, I think, man, I feel like I was eating black bean burgers before it was cool, like years ago. And I thought like, I have to avoid, avoid eating like regular hamburger meat. I was ordering like the the black bean burgers at Johnny Rockets and then still eating my fries next to it. And we'll kind of get into some of the nuances of that too, because a lot of studies that are around red meat consumption, there's actually an interesting study that popped up on my Twitter feed today uh, by CNN, where it was discussing how the rise in diabetes could be actually linked, get this folks, to red meat and not, yeah, I love just the facial reaction alone is all we need. But I'd, I'd love to sort of like unpack that because there are a lot of studies on red meat and the dangerous aspects of red meat or animal foods in general, but usually they're in the guise, even, even low carb diet studies are in the guise of either a modern Western style diet. So meaning when you eat the red meat, it's packed between two buns and mayonnaise and you're eating a thing of fries with it in a shaker or soda. And also um, these, like these other factors that aren't clear in the head title of the article. So maybe you can unpack that a little bit and what also you've seen in, in your research and studies you've read. Yeah. I mean, the associations of red meat and diabetes, they are just that associations. So it's a large population based study. You ask people what they eat, uh, you track them over time. And if they develop diabetes, you link it back to their diet. Now, the unfortunate part in the U S is, is that the highest meat eaters are also the ones that are eating standard American diets, rich in ultra processed foods, like you described, the hamburger buns, the, the fries on the side. So epidemiological associations often find this association between people that eat more meat and have more diabetes. But then randomized controlled trials, so intervention-based studies, they do not find that red meat negatively alters uh, health risk related to diabetes. So glycemic markers or insulin-related uh, markers. And why is that? Because in randomized controlled trials, we typically study red meat in the context of a healthy diet, red meat and a Mediterranean diet, a bold diet, a DASH diet. What do all these diets have in common? They're whole foods based. And what you see there is either there's a neutral effect of red meat or there's an improvement in uh, glycemic markers. And to give you an example, one study that we did, we did a um, eight-week randomized controlled trial. We put people on a standard American diet for four weeks or we put them on a whole foods diet for four weeks. And we absolutely plowed them full of red meat because they were eating red meat like six ounces a day, which is a, is, is a lot. Maybe not for, you know, people on animal-based diets. But for the average population, that's quite a bit of red meat, six ounces a day. And when we fed them this as a whole foods-based diet, everyone got healthier. Their triglycerides dropped 30%. Uh, their uh, fasting glucose dropped. Their fasting insulin dropped. So we saw all these improvements in health despite eating a lot of red meat. The folks that were eating red meat as part of a standard American diet, well, they were eating a standard American diet as part of their habitual diet because we just matched what the typical American diet is, which is two-thirds ultra-processed foods. They did not improve. They didn't get worse, but they did not improve either. But the other group, we had this marked reduction. And, of course, people can say, like, hey, 
if you didn't feed them red meat, they would have been even healthier. But I think you can only get so so much healthier, and they had some marked improvements. But here's the main thing: meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials indicate that there's no negative impact on of red meat on uh, glucose or insulin markers. And I think that is so key, and that is the most reasonable explanation is is because we study red meat in randomized controlled trials as part of healthy diets. Yeah, and not to make this too much of a twenty questions thing, but I just I had a thought based on what you were just saying about not only nutrient density and the differences in amino acids and stuff like that that we're talking about between the Beyond Burger and normal beef or grass fed beef, but I could just see someone saying, "Well, you know, what if we just nutritionally fortified." this beyond burger with all of these other amino acids that are missing and all these vitamins that are missing, like they've done with cereals and all those things, what would be other problems with that? Or does that fix the problem? I mean, in my head, I feel like I have an opinion on it, but I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people would just jump to that conclusion. Well, we'll just scientifically jump over that hurdle and annoy the uh, uh, food. Yeah, no, it's a reductionistic approach and an overestimation of our knowledge of foods. Like, I mean, we study food metabolomics, we're really deep into this, and I have no idea what's in food. So I don't know how you would re uh, recreate that, to be honest with you. And what we also know is, is that there's absolutely a place for vitamin and mineral supplementation. If you're on a vegan diet, you should absolutely take supplemental uh, B12. Or if you have you know, a diet that is low in red meat, you have zinc or iron insufficiency, then yes, a supplement could be beneficial. But... We know that in food sources, the vitamins and minerals come with a bunch of cofactors that A, aid in their digestion absorption, they aid in their metabolism, and there's also safety nets against uh, toxicity. I mean, if you stay taking uh, certain um, high amounts of, of vitamins, right, we know that they probably don't work as well as when they come in a, in a whole food matrix. And we don't have like a full handle on that, but... To give you an example, there was an interesting paper that came out last year, and it talked about the meat factor. No one knows what the hell the meat factor is, but what the meat factor tells us is that if we consume um, red meat and get iron and zinc from red meat, there's an enhanced uptake than getting the same amount of iron from, let's say, black beans. And to further top it off, if we eat chili with black beans and beef, we actually have a better iron and zinc uptake from those black beans as well. And this is explained by what we call the meat factor. These are unidentified compounds in meat that do seem to uh, upregulate it. And, and the same thing is true vice versa for, for plants as well, right? Where we, uh, uh, to give you the example, high doses of vitamin C can become a pro-oxidant, but there's absolutely zero indication that uh, this happens in the context of eating whole plant sources. See, the food matrix is one matrix I could probably live in. But it's, it, so I'm kind of doubling down on that when we're talking about the difference between supplementation and then whole food sources. I, I like to look at it as we're receiving information from our food. And like a good example of a supplement that could go awry is like vitamin D. I'm not a super big fan anymore of supplementing vitamin D, except for specific cases, maybe depending on parts of the place, planet you live, like Michigan during winter effect and stuff like that. I'd still rather use a vitamin D lamp. But you're getting different information from sunlight and your body has that natural response to know when to cut off making too much vitamin D. You have melanin, you have all these other things that are going on where when you skip all these processes and you're just taking vitamin D, it, you're, you're cutting out 
a mechanism that was evolutionarily there to help you not go overboard. And that's the same with food. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and to further latch on to that, what we also know is, is that the vitamin D in food sources, they are much more bioavailable and bioactive in our body than taking a pill. And again, you know, if you think of it like, oh, an, an egg or, uh, you know, salmon that contains vitamin D, it probably contains the equivalent of, of just a few hundred IUs. But they have similar biological activity as taking like high doses. And why is that? Well, probably it has to do with the fact that you get 125 dihydroxy vitamin D. So it's already sort of preformed and, and in a way that's uh, usable for us in metabolism. And then also to your point of, of, of sunlight, indeed, our body will use the amount or, or synthesize the amount that it needs and then shuts it off. But if you start taking high doses, then yeah, there's a risk of, of toxicity. There may be a risk of, uh, you know, driving metabolism, a lot of the impacts on gene expression and things like that. Yeah, there, I, I think we should have some safety in that. But here's the thing sort of with supplements and, and, and vitamins, like, you know, sort of this idea, oh, we'll just take high doses of vitamins and we're good right? I think it can have a negative effect as well. It's only worthwhile if you certain have yeah, like certain deficiencies and then absolutely it is important to do, but as a long-term uh, approach, yeah, a food first approach is much better. Yeah. I mean, I think it just goes to show, like you're saying, I mean, you live and breathe this stuff and you're saying like, I don't know anything about food, like at this complexity that we need to really understand how every function, you know, the, the synergism works between compounds. And yeah, I, I used to take so many supplements. I kind of like have backed off that a ton and just focus on whole food sources. So just so everyone's like understanding the study, you know, of metabolomics is you're able to kind of use the downstream metabolites to see how various nutrients are getting absorbed in the body. Is, is that how I'm understanding it correctly? Yeah, that, that's part it's of it. It's like a higher amount or lower amount. It can vary whether it's good or bad or, yeah, I guess maybe walk through the the life cycle of, you know, a nutrient. Say, say just protein, for example, because we always like to talk about how protein in animal foods is superior to plant foods. Um, typically, I know there's scores out there like the PDCAS and, and things like that. And then there's, you know, just bioavailability, digestibility. Um, you know, muscle protein synthesis activation, like how, do, how does that walk through the life cycle of like metabolites and, and everything? Yeah. So what the nice thing about metabolomics is, is that as you suggest, you measure products of metabolism. So you might be able to measure a parent compound. And then if you have sort of a handle on the pathway, you can measure a bunch of downstream compounds as well, that it could impact, uh, you know, from a, from a standpoint of, of protein, indeed, you know, you measure amino acids, you can measure amino acid metabolites and, and certain cofactors that, uh, that play a role in that. Um, now, now, granted, indeed, animal sourced foods, they have a higher uh, PDCAS score or, or DIAS score, DIA score, which are measurements of protein digestibility and quality. If you eat enough protein, though, like just looking at protein amino acids, then, you know, with plant source foods, you can get enough amino acids. So if you eat about 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight, uh, I'm European, so I think in metric, um, but it's about, I think it's about, you know, one and a half times your body weight or so. Um, 
you can see that there's no difference anymore between plant and animal source foods. But what I'm particularly interested in is just like, you know, we often dumb down foods, the protein, right? Thinking, mm-hmm. oh, bean is protein, beef is protein. But I'm more interested also in the other hundreds and thousands of compounds that come with it. And that is where you see a lot of differences. So, but yeah, when we measure metabolism, for instance, and an, an example that now pops to mind is, is that we measure a lot of phytochemicals like plant secondary metabolites. And we know it starts with a couple of major ones like synaptic acid, ferulic acid, cinnamic acid, high amounts of, found in high amounts of cinnamon. So that's why it's called cinnamic acid. Phenolic acid is another one found in high amounts of vanilla. It's, you know, we're not that uh, creative in nutrition science. Uh, but, but my point being is, is that you see all these downstream targets being enriched also of that and that's you know what the nice thing is about uh, metabolomics is you can measure a lot of those those compounds and then also if you kind of know which metabolic pathway they act upon let's say they act upon you know uh, glucose metabolism then you can see also or at least glean from it how they potentially impact glucose metabolism and start to drive uh, glycolytic pathways and then glucose related metabolites so you just get sort of an overview of of the metabolism of the human body or if you study it in a piece of meat it gives you a lot of clues on the health or the metabolism of the animal or plant yeah i think it's yeah it's it's really exciting stuff um and it seems like you know we're, we're able to now have a better understanding of, of the nuance, the spectrum of, of nutrient density in, in things like red meat, which we're definitely going to dive into shortly. But before that, in terms of like, yeah, human physiology and metabolism, you're saying we were talking beforehand that there's not a lot of research there. Um, you know, wh- what's out there now? Or like, are blood tests kind of ineffective at measuring certain nutrients? And, you know, what are your thoughts on right now for someone to just be on top of this because i know like minerals and hair testing blood testing it's it's always questionable depending on the nutrient so could this be like the missing link you know five ten years down the road to really giving us a full picture of our health yeah i mean certainly people are using metabolomics uh, heavily for the for the study of of metabolism and people have been doing that for uh, probably like a good part of a decade or so um what i meant more of that in, in respect is that you know, we don't really know as much now. Now we're do- doing a lot of work where we overlay the food metabolome with the uh, human metabolome. And it's kind of this idea, you are what you eat. So if we overlay the two, and it is absolutely true. If you eat, um, you know, yogurt or something like that, your blood profile starts to kind of reflect the compounds that are in yogurt. So people have done studies like that. And we're doing a study now where we're doing impossible burger, grass-fed beef, grain-fed beef. Well, well, you start your blood start to look like an impossible burger a little bit, or at least of those compounds. So those are some of the things that we're studying. And but but the nice thing about it is that yes, you do get a bigger picture about uh, about metabolomics, and you can measure uh, more cofactors in environment and mineral metabolism. Because usually, what you see with uh, yeah, and it depends on the compound as well. I mean, some nutrient deficiencies are particularly hard to assess it could be like you know zinc deficiency or something like that is you usually need you know it could be uh that you look at blood zinc levels you look at certain certain proteins but then again it's always tricky because you have some sort of immune uh if you just have a cough or or sick it could indicate that you have zinc depletion whereas you probably don't so 
bullet tests are definitely very important and and you know and i could see a, a a point at some point where you know sort of the metabolomics approach is i mean you get like more of a comprehensive insight uh yeah that could be the case as this grows and, and the price comes down on uh on doing some of that testing yeah it seems like sometimes the blood work for me is just like you know it's just a snapshot in time for certain things and i think it's a great tool like anything else and it's a great starting point you know in in terms of someone's health journey, but people need to be aware that it's not like this is, you know, the Holy grail of like understanding exactly what's going on in your body. It's much more complex. It's dynamic. I mean, fasting blood glucose, testosterone hormones, like they're all fluctuating on a 24 hour basis, like rapidly. So you just need to be aware of that. And maybe that's why it's important to get educated. But I like what you say, you know, you are what you eat. That's, you know, what our, our moms have been telling us that our whole lives, but now I want to get into you are what you eat ate in terms of people who are eating animal foods, right? And, you know, the premise, the logical premise is that it does matter. But for a long time now, especially here in the U.S., a lot of our animal foods or animals that we're raising for livestock are eating pretty low quality feed and food. So what has your research found in terms of, you know, grain finishing, grain fed ruminants, you know, monogastrics, does this actually have a big impact on nutrient density? It does. I think it has to have a bigger impact than most consumers realize because oftentimes you just hear, oh, there's a difference in uh, omega-3 fatty acid profiles and that's it, right? I think that is due to the fact that we, that's mostly what we studied were omega-3 fatty acid profiles. We haven't really, you know, studied a broad number of nutrients, but whenever people say that, I always pose them the following question. Let's say if I put you on a Mediterranean diet or a standard American diet for three months, would you think that you would be the same after those three months and that your blood work would look the same? Or even if I took a muscle biopsy from you, that your, your, your cells in, in the muscle would look the same? Probably not, right? If we do put a lab mouse on a Mediterranean diet or, or an, another diet that's completely different, we'd expect to see a difference. But then when it comes to a cow, we don't expect to see a difference after three months. That that doesn't make any sense, right? And that's really what we're seeing too, is that um, when cattle are grazing biodiverse pastures and phytochemically rich plants, we see that there's a transfer of those nutrients into their uh, meat. And with total mixed rations that are high in grains and high in corn, we know that corn is low in these antioxidants. So you see uh, actually a decrease in that when the animal goes into the feedlot after about 45 days already, it might have been, been cut in half. So you do see differences in many of these plant antioxidants. And, you know, these are things that we kind of know also from human nutrition studies, because if uh, a woman who is uh, lactating eats a very phytochemically rich diet, you can detect a lot of those plant antioxidants in their breast milk. No reason to think that it wouldn't happen to a cow either, right? And that's kind of what we've been seeing is, is that, yeah, the cow, they are what they eat, just like us as mammals, as humans. It's actually kind of interesting. It reminds me um, of about 10 years ago when I was in the camp of organic foods are a scam because nutritionally they're just the same as normal and like pesticide-laden foods. But it was interesting because they, they are different. And logically, when you when you sort of remove yourself from 
the TV and the news and all that stuff, like on a logical basis, like Tristan was saying, it kind of makes sense that what you eat and what that ate should matter because what it ate created its biology. And if you look at it on a pure, pure human basis, you look at someone who's on a pure Western diet and maybe is obese versus someone that's eating a grass fed, rich animal based protein and actually just a whole food based diet. Let's just do a whole food based diet. They'll have completely different biology going on. You can see that in blood work. And so why wouldn't it be different for animals? So there's like this question of, are we just generically eating obese animals? uh, If we were to compare it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we're eating obese animals, but I care. what I can tell you that if you look at uh, sort of the phenotype or the metabolism of a pasture finished cow, versus a cow that was fed on grains, then sort of comparatively, I have no idea how this looks on a sliding scale. So I don't want to say that the grain fed animal has, uh, is, is diseased, but comparatively the grass fed animals show sort of a phenotype of an athletic human. So we've done work with endurance trained athletes too. And we take a piece of muscle from their thigh and study that raw metabolomics on this. Um, they start to look you know, very similar to an athletic cow almost, right? The pasture-based cow. And uh, you see improvements in mitochondrial metabolism, less glucose dysfunction. And then if you look at a feedlot finished cow, yeah, they start to show metabolic dysfunction, like early signs of metabolic syndrome. Now, I don't know how that would impact our health, but comparatively, yeah, compared to a a pasture-finished cow, they do show all the, the, the signs of metabolic dysfunction, at least early signs of that. And what sort of like, at least based on what you have studied, is it like three months in the feedlot and they're only getting grain or what my biggest question is, you know, there's, there's a big gray area in this and it's like, you know, we could talk about feeding higher quality grain in the pasture. How would that move the needle? Um, you know, how long exactly are they spending in the feedlot? Um, is it three months? Is it one month? And yeah, I'm curious, your opinion, obviously you don't have all the data points, but based on what you studied, where do you think that that kind of lies? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, and I'm not opposed to grain feeding. And one thing you mentioned, like uh, grazing, um, maybe cornfields that have been harvested or something like that, of upcycling that or feeding some grain byproducts on pasture. I think that's a great way of upcycling grains. It's just what we sometimes do as humans, we take something that's good and then we take it to the extreme and it backfires, right? And that is maybe what have happened with like pushing animals up to 80% corn. And, you know, it's not ideal for their health. I mean, we have to be that realistic. Um, and also, it here becomes very nuanced because we've worked with farmers and I sometimes call it an artisanal feedlot. It's just like, you know, a local farmer that has like a feedlot and then finishes for 30 days on some mm-hmm. corn to get like some marbling in that they then directly sell to consumers. Yeah, that's completely different than um, three or four months in a feedlot being pushed up to, to 80% corn, whereas, you know, other farmers are maybe feeding 50% alfalfa, 50% corn in a feed choice arrangement, almost like a cow buffet, right? They can at least mm-hmm. select still and self-regulate. Yeah, I mean, that is different than, uh, and we see those differences there, right? we see then Grain fat isn't grain fat isn't grain fat. That, that farmer that's feeding 50% alfalfa, 50% corn for 30 days has a lot more phytochemicals and antioxidants in the meat still than uh, maybe an animal that was uh, in a feedlot fed 80% corn. And the same is true for grass fat. I mean, what is interesting is, is that the best grass fat sample is certainly a whole lot better than the best grain fat sample. 
but some grain-fed samples are better than the worst grass-fed sample. So it is definitely not black and white. And that's what that is due to is, again, like if you're overgrazing a monoculture pasture, that grass-fed animal is not going to be that healthy either. Yeah, that's that's what was most eye-opening to me about your research. And like what I've read is that there is these overlapping spectrums. It's not black and white. Like people just, it's people need it to be made simple for them. They're like grass-fed or grain-fed. And it's like, well, there could be a hundred different variations in, in each bucket. And I think grass-fed has just become so trendy nowadays, the last five years. And the, the producers have realized that. But for me is like, and what you're talking about is that the ecosystem that the animals are grazing actually matters tremendously. And I think, you know, you show me some of this data is like the top tier, like the truly regenerative, holistic managed, whatever you want to call them that are grazing diverse pastures are far elite compared to like your average monoculture grass fed cow that is probably just eating alfalfa. And is that due to just the variety in phytochemicals, you know, the quality of the soil health or, or what can you attribute to this? All those. Yes. Yeah. Quality of soil health. That's where it starts. Plant diversity. We know that plant diversity and soil health are kind of symbiotic, right? If we have more uh, microbial or life in the soil, the plants do better, but also having multiple plants on pasture, they can strengthen the soil again as well. But yeah, to your point, like some of the sort of superstar farmers that use these adaptive or regenerative practices, agroecological practices, those always rise to the top. The set grass-fed samples that we tested that were maybe not as good off, those were mostly just beef that we bought, grass-fed beef that was labeled grass-fed from a grocery store. Mm. And, you know, then you can it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Some of these samples look good, but some of these samples I'm looking at, and I see the omega-63 ratio of like 12 you know, which you find in a feedlot beef. And I'm like, I don't think this is grass-fed. There's no way this is grass-fed because it has the, the, the profile of feedlot beef. And um, so that will make, what makes it hard to do for the consumer. But I can tell you this, every farmer that we worked with and have sent in samples that we know or have a relatively good feel on, like they use regenerative practices, those were all good samples. So if you connect with local farmers that are, you know, doing uh, a good job in managing that cattle, and usually they're willing to show you and, you know, and, and yeah, I have not bought beef or sourced beef from a farmer's market, for instance, that was uh, not high quality. Yeah, I think that just goes and proves exactly what we talk about a lot. It's like, you know, buying local, supporting your, your local operations and verifying it is so valuable because yeah i mean their reputations on the line they directly you know can have sales affected they're already probably barely hanging on and they're just trying to do it the right way or suppose the grocery store it's become just like a, a one-up game of marketing and trying to grab your attention and for me it's it's almost i know for a fact if it doesn't say 100 percent grass-fed then i know it's it's not it's just straight up. That's how it works. Even Whole Foods, like if it doesn't say 100% grass fed, it's not. If it doesn't say it's from the US of A, it's not. And that's where there's even more trickiness that goes on with, with labeling and mCool and all that. Yeah, let's talk about that because you said if it's not from the US. So here's where you become sketchy. If, you, uh, if the US government imports uh, 
beef from Brazil, but it's being processed in U.S. plants. You can put product of USDA mm-hmm. in it. So that's now a big uh, sort of discussion point. It's like, can we do that? Because it is not from the U.S. But as a consumer, I look at that package and say product of the USA. Unless it says born, raised and harvested in the USA is the only way that you know it's, it's from the U.S. And the, the tricky part of that is and also, and I understand it also from sort of, you know, big wholesaler standpoint or like, you know, uh, a, a, a grocery store. If you can buy grass-fed beef somewhere cheaper out of Brazil, Uruguay or Australia, as opposed to from U.S. ranchers, then, yeah, you might do that uh, because you get a bigger markup on it because it still can say grass-fed beef, right? Um but yeah, what we sometimes have seen at least, and again, not always the case because I'm sure there's great beef coming out of Brazil and Uruguay and New Zealand, and we know this, but there's also some that comes out of that. Yeah, you know, it's hard to control, right? If you don't know really your farmer, or at least have some sort of feel on the supply chain. Yeah, actually, I had a question about, about the labeling and the process of labeling. Cause like I'll go to Whole Foods and I'll see at the meat counter, and I know the difference, but like people can easily be fooled by the words like pasture raised or grass fed or hundred percent grass fed. And that maybe you could kind of explain the both bit of the differences and the tiers and how those are created and how someone can qualify because the same for organic. Cause like you need to meet certain qualifications to label organic, but that's still like a spectrum of the quality. Yeah. So I sort of like, do we need tighter regulation on that or, what are your thoughts? Yeah, probably need tighter regulation on it. I mean, for something to be labeled grass-fed, the animal has spent uh, uh, during the grazing season has to be has to be outside, right? But um, it can be in confinement, fed alfalfa and labeled grass-fed, right? That, that sometimes happens with like big dairies or something like mm-hmm. that. When you uh, buy grass-fed milk, the consumer has this idea of, oh, these are cows grazing outside. And in many producers, that is the case. But in other cases, for sure, there have been, you know, cows in zero grazing systems being fed alfalfa. And yeah, that can technically be labeled grass-fed milk. But yeah, that is not what you probably think of as a consumer. You picture a cow outside on luscious green pastures, right? So yeah, there should probably be some sort of regulation on that. But that's, yeah, the the grass-fed verification. yeah, it's, it's probably not enforced as much. Yeah, and just going back to the country of origin label, and I think there's actually been some headway made. Someone is comment or tagging me and stuff. So it, anyone who needs to or has interest research this, it's, it goes back to like 2012, back and forth, where, you know, actually Canada and Mexico lobbied with like the World Trade Organization to ban the mandatory labeling because it, it used to have to say um, – born, harvested, and raised in the United States, or else you couldn't put that. And then the WTO shut that down because if you don't know, we import the most amount of beef um, from Mexico and Canada just because they're neighbors. We also export, you know, you're saying the wholesalers here in the U.S., they they just manipulate the market, right? This is the problem with, you know, big beef is for companies control 80% of the supply. So they know they get a higher profit importing from overseas and exporting our beef to China and Korea and Taiwan. But I, don't get me wrong. We're talking a lot about the nuances of, of beef here. And it's, it's still a great option to be able to go to Whole Foods and, and, or go to Walmart. I mean, you know, it's still access to nutrition. But at the end of the day, you really don't know unless you go to the rancher's operation and verify it yourself. So that's, you know, that's, on you it's the responsibility this is you know a show about decentralization 
that's what really matters. Um, yeah, and it's also just good to be connected to your food, right? Otherwise, you yes. can convince yourself that milk comes out of a package instead of out of a cow, right? And there, there, so there's a risk for for people to become disconnected from their uh, yeah their food supply. It also makes you appreciate it more, mm -hmm. right? If you're yeah, you know, and you can we can argue about the ethics of is it ethical to eat an, another animal, right? And and uh, I'm sure, it's, and I can respect that if people don't feel that way. Uh, it's another question with it, and you can. Put this on a population-wide basis but okay we won't go down that that route today but but my point being is is that also if you are more connected to your farming where your food comes from it also makes you appreciate right that that uh, an animal is nourishing you and that that had a life right and so i think that's that's also important to be and then maybe you're more thinking of the fact it's like okay because that's to the point like when the export is a lot of it, truth be told, a lot of what exported is, is things that we don't eat here, mm -hmm. right? Because we don't eat a lot of organs here, uh, other sort of byproducts that, you know, beef tongue, for instance, that's what we export to China because it's mm -hmm. more common to eat here. So so it's different cuts that we, we exchange a little bit. And that, that's part of the story why there's so much uh, export and import because we, we export and import, but we do different cuts. But to the point is, is that, yeah, I mean, indeed, knowing the farmer, Appreciating the farmer, I think that's that's so important, and, and also, of course, the farmer is more rewarded for for their product as well. So, yeah, yeah, and I think what's interesting to also hypothesize is just there's some benefits that we probably don't know about or can't prove that if you eat something that's hyper local, you know, you're you're living, breathing this environment as a human, and then if you're in the same environment as an animal. I, you know, we're talking about the complexity of, of food and energy transfer and, you know, a lot of this stuff that Ryan and I are into, like quantum health and eat at your latitude. Like you could theorize that it's even more valuable to, you know, eat something that's truly local. It hasn't been packed, frozen, shipped, you know, maybe it's frozen, but it's just locally done. It hasn't shipped all across around the world and got been exposed to who knows what. Yeah, I mean... It makes sense what you're yeah. saying. We have no science to back <laughs> that up. Other than uh, the only thing that popped to mind was is that we know that the honey of yes. bees start to reflect your local ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if we have a lot of data to suggest that then, therefore, you are less, you know, it's, it's more... You can be less prone to allergies if yeah, you, yeah. you get the microdose of pollen. That, that, right? is, that is the theory. I don't know how much scientific evidence <laughs> there is for it, but we do know that bees from your local ecosystem will have phytochemicals from plants found in your local ecosystem, yeah, and the same thing is true for 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 a cow. I don't know, I you know, we we have no scientific data to to, to say like, okay, if you eat grass fed beef from your local local farm, yeah. Then I, here's what I feel comfortable saying is that the, the phytochemicals found in in the beef from your local farmer, yeah, will represent, of course, mm -hmm. the local plant ecosystem. I mean, that's 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 true. Whether that has an appreciable effect on your health, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's fun to theorize that. I think it makes sense. But either way, it's a win-win-win for, you know, your health, supporting the local economy as well, and being able to verify the quality. I yeah, mean, and you take more ownership, right? Let's yes. think of it the fact that if, if it's in your, 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 you know, backyard and you see that there's sort of a regeneration of, of the local community, uh, you're much more inclined to do that. And they have done projects like that in Wales where sort of the local community took like, you know, charge of, of their local food system. And then you're like supporting a local farmer like, yeah, let's make sure that we grow 
our crops or our foods in agroecological ways because I see wildlife returning. It's a much nicer environment to live in, right? As opposed to, you know, and we think this doesn't affect us, but it does affect us. This is our avocado farmer in Chile who is struggling with water supplies, right? And we think it doesn't affect us, but it also does affect us. But we don't think about it because it is not in our backyard. Yeah, where you're outsourcing that. I mean, it's like, you know, you can make the debate of, you know, electric vehicles versus internal combustion engine vehicles, right? They both have an impact on the environment. One might just be in the Congo and one might be here in Salt Lake City with air pollution. I mean, or on the flip side, the positive impact of something like buying regeneratively raised animal meat and food could positively impact your local environment. So I, I think that's a great point. But I kind of want to dive into like some of the specifics about like grass fed, grain fed or diverse pasture raised beef. You talk about omega six to three ratio. I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with that. If you're not, um, you know, it's important to have a, a relatively lower omega six to three ratio. These are polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, beef, you know, Sacred Cow, for example, written by Rob Wolf, Diana Rogers, kind of they wanted to dive into this. They even talked about how they hired a third party research team to research the, you know, debate of grain fed versus grass. But this is, of course, I think before some of the work you were doing. And, um, you know, but they also talk about how like meat beef is the a bit insignificant in terms of, you know, the omega six to three ratio compared to like a salmon or, or you know, marine raised animal. But I'm curious Maybe we can dive into this a little bit. You know, you could lay out, you're talking like feedlot beefs, like 10, 12 to 1. And then, you know, some of these really high-end regenerative ranches are like close to 1 to 1, right? Yeah, that's right. And I do want to clear up the misconception that, because uh, people, what you just mentioned to me, you know, about oh, beef contains so little omega-3s that it, 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 it's insignificant. That's not true. Uh, and I have a conversation about this with Diane Rogers as well. Uh, is about, there's about, I think maybe eight to 10 randomized controlled trials now that looked at pasture finished animal source foods. This is beef, um, chicken, pigs, uh, horse meat even, even though we don't eat it here. I think there was a study with yak. I mean, there's been studies done also outside the US where people eat other source meats. But what these studies find is, is that despite muscle cuts only containing a few milligrams of DHA, whereas it might be like 100 times more in fish, you do see that after feeding or eating that beef, grass-fed beef versus grain-fed beef, after about six, eight weeks, you see, do see the omega-3 levels in the people, in the blood of people rise. So even though on paper it seems insignificant, it seems like it can move the needle on omega-3 profiles. And we know this also in sort of modeling, these are Granted, modeling studies, you always have to be careful with that, but um, informed by data, nevertheless, is that in Irish and Australian population groups that eat more uh, pasture-raised animal source foods, the omega-3s from meat can make an important contribution. And the last thing I want to say about this is that this was already known in the 90s. Sinclair, uh, a scientist out of Australia, was doing work with kangaroo with uh, pastured beef. In the 90s, he was one of the first to show that if you eat kangaroo or if you eat grass-fed beef, your omega-3 profiles in the blood of people go up. Do we understand at all the mechanism for that yet? Or is there any like hunches towards why yeah, that might be? it's probably some of the cofactors that are in there. So you, and this is common. We see this in nutrition all the time. Is that you look at an amount that a food contains on paper and then 
you think, oh, this will only raise by this much, but then it ends up raising it much higher. Vitamin D is classic. 200 IUs from a food source, whereas uh, we might need 2,000 IUs from a, from a pill to raise vitamin D to the same levels. And this is also, and this is again something we cannot explain. It's probably the food matrix that you see that, okay, limited amounts of EPA and DHA in there. We think a few milligrams won't make a difference, but there's probably, and here's probably what it, what it is, is, is that, you know, there's antioxidants in there, phytochemicals, there's production, protection against lipid peroxidation, even in our body. So it, it probably is delivered or, you know, or, or sort of protected a little bit during digestion absorption, uh, protected from lipid peroxidation, so oxidation of the lipids because of the cofactors that come with it. And we don't know exactly what it is, but that's what we're observing. It's really fascinating because to me, it's just like every time I would think about, oh man, maybe we can somehow outsmart nature somehow, like nature somehow already is doing something better than what we think we can do. And we don't even understand, like you said, you're a nutrition scientist and you don't even understand food nearly as much as the things you're seeing in there. So it's, it's just, it's fascinating how much we do know at the same time, how much we do not understand not only what we know, but what we have yet to know. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Because, you know, even the vitamins, we discovered that only 100 years ago, 100 years of nothing, right, in, in sort of this timeline. And I feel like we're in that stage now with phytochemicals is that, yeah, we're scratching the surface on these things and well, what, what they do and what these secondary metabolites can do for our health. And, and we observe these things, indeed. Um, we, we see that it, it happens, but we don't know why it happens. And, and like the phytochemical piece. So from my understanding is when, yeah, the research you've done has shown that, you know, like the highest end grass fed, grass finished, holistically raised beef is like, well, like 70 to 80% higher in phytochemical nutrients. It's, that's how you classify no, nutrient density or, or even more. So yeah. yeah. How do you classify nutrient density? You know, what, what is the advantage and what exactly does that mean? There's no defined term for nutrient density. So if you ask me, I say, you know, micronutrient content or, mm -hmm. or phytochemical content, something like that. You pack, here's how I would say it. You pack more beneficial nutrients per unit product. So you have more beneficial nutrients per three ounce product. If you have um, three ounces of, of beef that contains 300% more phytochemicals, antioxidants, then I would say it's more nutrient dense or you pack more B vitamins, it's more nutrient dense, even though the weight of the two products is the same. So that is I, what to me is nutrient density. And, and to your point, and this where it becomes interesting, we found like an 11 fold variation. So uh, yeah, over a thousand percent variation. So indeed the, the worst grass fats, uh, grain fat sample and the, and the uh, best grass fat From sample. The yeah. Absolute worst to the absolute best. Yeah, it's eleven is eleven hundred percent different. Wow! In in, in antioxidants, so and that's that's kind of uh, bizarre, right? And you don't know that. And we see this with other things too. It's like you know, even with plant foods, you see it too. Like a carrot is in the carrot is in the carrot. A blueberry is in the blueberry is in the blueberry. You can see this incredible variation between uh, between samples. But here's what we can trace it back to in, in animal source foods. We also tested the forages and the total mixed mm -hmm. rations, and then yeah, you might have. Um, you know, 7,000% more phytochemicals in biodiverse forages as opposed to total mixed ration. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just astounding. So, I mean, even, yeah, if you're eating a lot of produce, like 
you have no idea the the level. And a lot of people talk about soil depletion and how like, you know, fruits and vegetables from 40, 50 years ago are like half the nutrient density they are now. And it seems like that's probably true. Or we, we don't even know because the variance is so high, but on an average, it's, it's probably true. Yeah, studies have suggested that if you test the, and, and this is looking at like a historical nutrient reference mm-hmm. database. USDA has been tracking this for a long time. And you see like a 30, 40% decrease in, in many micronutrients. Now, it could be soil health related or it could be because we've selected for a high yield uh, cultivar. So think of it as that, like I have a blueberry here and then I've uh, made it twice as big, but it still contains the same absolute amount of phytochemicals. So I've essentially watered it down. So I think that is also part of it because we select for high yields and because you get paid per ton product, mm-hmm. you don't get paid for nutrient density. Wow. Yeah, that's that's incredible. It makes so much sense too. So in terms of the beef as well, um, you know, you talk a lot of the phytochemicals, obviously it's like an outrageous advantage. How about, yeah, the vitamins, the amino acids, like is there a significant advantage in grass-fed, fully grass-fed, the best grass-fed versus grain-fed? I know obviously we've talked about you can get some skewed data in general for the amino acid side because grass-fed, fully grass-fed beef is, is just leaner. But like, yeah, what's the summary? Because people, like you're saying, we can't really wrap our heads around phytochemicals, what their benefits are. I mean, some of the terpenoid compounds and yeah. everything. We know they have like some of these have anti-cancer properties, antioxidants in general. It's good um, to prevent, you know, or reverse some some free radical oxidation. But it's not as easy for the average person to understand why that matters. Um, but how about... B vitamins, amino acids, and, and things like that, minerals. I don't think you've tested a ton of minerals, right? Yeah, we started doing that recently just because you have the capability uh, and the instrumentation at Utah State University to do that. So if you start doing that, you see some interesting differences there too and some uh, variations in iron and zinc. Uh, and then, you know, we've, we've tested some chicken and, and, and some contain arsenic, some don't, right? So it's also and, – and that's probably – I mean, that's due to the soil uh, – either that the feed was grown in or the uh, pasture that they're grazing. So yeah, if you have you know, soil contamination, and it might not even be your fault, right? It might be something that has been done 30, 40 years ago or something like that. But yeah, you can, you can, you can test that. And so we do see variation in that too. Um, again, here on the beef vitamins, again, we see this incredible variation, but on average, grass-fed and grain-fed uh, is similar in many of the beef vitamins, except for two, which is vitamin B3, niacin. We know that uh, forages can provide many of the precursors for that. And then vitamin B5 is higher in grain-fed beef. Why? Because vitamin B5 is high in corn. So again, it's not that black and white. Yeah, on average, I'd say grass-fed beef is more nutrient-dense, but some nutrients are more bene- are, are uh, higher, beneficial nutrients are higher in grain-fed beef. So that's why I'm always like, maybe we can find a happy balance between them because, you know, we have byproducts, right? I, and, and to me, personally, I get it from an economical standpoint, but sort of from a, you know, an agroecology standpoint, it doesn't make any sense to grow feed for a ruminant that can do with uh, food for them that you and I cannot consume. They can live on grasses. There's no need to grow feed for them per se, right? But if feeding them byproducts, yeah, I think is, is an excellent way of doing it. And then to wrap it up, this final thought is, is that we have a lot of agri-waste, fruit and vegetable waste, right? It could be something like potato peels or something like that. And I know in California, like, you know, 
lemon peels or can be fed to dairies and almond hulls and stuff like that. And I think that's a great way of upcycling byproducts of, you know, still putting the weight on the animal. And we know also these byproducts are usually very phytochemically rich. Yeah. I mean, speaking of like the idea of food waste, I mean, there's so many things in the agricultural sect that I feel are done so inefficiently, the more you look at them. And a lot of these systems were developed like decades ago and like in a modern space don't necessarily make the same sense that they would have maybe in the fifties and sixties. And so I think a lot of the um, climate related stuff like really goes back to practices that we've had developed decades ago that now just make no sense in the modern environment. But speaking about byproducts and stuff like that, I look at it too, like a lot of people buy only muscle meat from the store. And like you mentioned earlier, like shipping over beef tongue and all these organs to other countries. I love beef tongue, one of my favorite things. And we waste so much of the animal. So I kind of look at it as the same way as like that going back to nutrient density, I look at it as a good way to measure it is it's been said before, but nutrition per calorie is sort of the way I look at it. And that's not obviously how it's weighed in the economic sense of weight and all of these things. But it's, it's fascinating when you get more granular into it, how, how nuanced everything is. But I think from the pure normie out there is listening or my mom and dad, who I'm going to send this to right after we get it out or whoever, like the point is like, you can get far more nutrition based on the animal you eat and where that animal ate and what it ate, which I think just isn't something that's common knowledge. So I'm really happy to get that information out there. Yeah. And it's so important also what you just said, because, you know, in the U S there's two things we probably don't have is a energy deficiency and probably also not a protein deficiency, although some people do. Um, but we do have micronutrient deficiencies or insufficiencies, I should say, insufficient intake. So if you have a more micronutrient-rich product, then, you know, you, you are able to help with that. And potentially, you know, you can eat a little bit less of that too. Or, you know, because you know some organ meats provide a lot of, of micronutrients that you would have to eat tons of muscle meat to gain. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just a matter of fact, I think. And we need to yeah think from a holistic point of view from the animal perspective. And yeah, I mean, I've been like making a ton of bone broth, for example. It's just like a byproduct, right? And there's so much meat that comes off these bones even when I'm making bone broth and I have nothing to do with them. What if I just had chickens or pigs? So that's kind of, I want to talk a little bit, we talked a lot about beef, right? And I think beef is, is great because, you know, even some of the worst beef is still pretty good. But the monogastrics, and then we can talk about the flip side of the coin, which is wild ruminants and bison. But the monogastrics, you know, wh what do you think of the, their value? And you're talking about upcycling byproducts. They're probably the kings of that. Have you done a lot of testing on, on monogastric animals? I bet the spectrum there is even wider in terms of nutrient density and quality. Yeah, we've done, done a lot of uh, testing also on, on chicken and uh yeah, I mean, they have the unique possibility. And this, this also kind of blew me away is that, you know, we've done some work with like, you know, this, this is a few percent of their diet as a byproduct, right? Like 5% or so of whether it be like great palmas or some other, like, you know, uh, byproduct that could potentially be fat or a grain or something like that or alfalfa. And I, you would think that a few percent won't matter. Well, it, may, it does make a big difference. So, because you can see that the omega uh, 6 to 3 ratio of, of you know, average uh, CAFO chicken is about uh, 18 to 1 or so, 17 to 1. So 
whereas feedlot beef for comparison is about 10 to 1, 12 to 1. But then you can bring that down to about 8 to 1 or so in, in chickens, pasture chickens, but that's because pasture chickens still oftentimes, at least the breeds that we have here, most commonly used, they still need quite a bit of feed, right? A lot of, quite a bit of grain to grow. Some heritage breeds, yeah, they could survive on forages exclusively. And, and this is to the, to the point, and this is also, we talk a lot about beef, but I, here's sort of my worry about this is that, you know, what we've done with plants, monocultures, we've done the same to our animal source foods, right? We eat beef, pork, and chicken. Mm-hmm. It would be so good if we had like greater diversity because we know different animals exploit different ecological niches. If you could raise, uh, and it's what we obviously did in the past, you know, beef and, and lamb, they exploit different plants, or even, and this is something I often talk about with a colleague at USDA, it's probably a completely crazy idea, but uh, ducks, duck and geese and rabbits, they're so efficient. Mm-hmm. They drop huge litters. Um, they can live on, on forage-based diets integrating that in our system because oftentimes we get into this discussion it's like can a grass-fed beef system support current red meat consumption in the u.s i don't know maybe it can't but if we eat more diverse uh animals rather than just beef and have small efficient herbivores i do think that potentially we could support red meat consumption it would just mean we have to die openly diversifying our meat but yeah that's uh yeah no and it's something i talk about a lot i actually just you know, I wrote about in newer edition of my book, I post on Twitter is like scaling livestock agriculture in, in the US if it was pasture raised standards. And I think it is. But then some things that are really important to take into account is management style. It's, uh, you know, using 100 million acres to grow the feed currently corn and soybeans that doesn't even include ethanol, which is 30% of all corn grown. It doesn't include multi-species grazing being an option, which we talked about yesterday with, with Mitch Dumkey. So it's like, there's all these options and it's like, yeah, almost, it seems like that could be more feasible than trying to manage like BLM land grazing, which is just a whole management and hassle. Only having beef on there, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, and it's, it's to your point, like multi-species grazing, multiple studies have shown, because you start to kind of start stacking enterprises, right? If you, on the same acreage of land, you can produce beef, you can produce lamb, you can produce chickens, you can produce uh, duck, right? It's like you, you produce more pounds per acreage. And that's various studies, and especially a lot of European studies, the French. So the, the French version of the USDA does a lot of work on multi-species grazing. And one of the outcomes of their studies is consistently that, is that there's greater productivity. Why is that? Because the animal kind of strengthens each other. And if you look at wild ecosystems, right? We don't mm-hmm. have one ruminant, mm-hmm. right? If you go to Yellowstone, you'll see uh, elk, you'll see uh, bison, mm-hmm. you'll see a whole bunch of herbivores, right? So if we can, if we want to move to agroecology or regenerative agriculture, that is probably what we should be doing as well, trying to mimic that by having uh, multiple animals. And I don't know if we have, uh, you know, multiple herbivores, how much red meat we can consume. I don't know. But what studies have shown is that you produce more pounds of meat per acre. And then also to the point, and this is often it is where it becomes very nuanced in this, this modeling, and it's, it's super hard to capture, is that with farmers, what they typically see is improvements in productivity too, right? As your forages uh, become more productive, then yeah, maybe you can increase your carrying capacity by mm-hmm. 50, 60%, right? And that is also one thing that we, yeah, the current, maybe the current status quo, if we do continuous grazing, 
on men's racing. They, we probably true. I, I also doubt whether we can sustain a pasture-based system, but with improvements in management with multi-species grazing, it, it will definitely go up. Yeah, it's almost like you can stack these modalities of management and multi-species grazing. And obviously, there's going to be fine-tuning depending on the environment. But that's the exact mindset I, I really think we need to have. And the U.S. is so strange. Yes, yeah, it's, it's just like chicken, beef, pork. I mean, people barely eat fish, sometimes just tuna or salmon, and, and that's it. But it, it's hilarious to me. Well, I mean, just to add on to that, I was having a conversation with a friend today because I've, I've kind of got him on eating more an animal-based diet, more like meat and stuff. He was explaining to me what he's been eating. He's just been eating like ground beef and like four ounces of salmon like here and there. I was like, no, you need to broaden like your ruminant horizons. Like you should be like lamb has a great source of omega-3s and stuff too. Like it's, I call it like the salmon of the land almost. But there's there's so many foods out there. And I think it, the, the, the issue with it is you almost have to change the entire like socioeconomic like mindset of how Americans grew up living. Cause if you were to talk to my grandpa who did grow up on a farm in, in Michigan and had family members in Iowa with farms, they would eat beef and potatoes all like grown on the farm and all this stuff, but they just ate like beef and potatoes and corn. Like they didn't eat like duck or goose or like foods that are buried like this. And it's interesting too, because it, the more we're talking about this, the more we're talking about mimicking nature um, and not trying to like come up with these really complex systems. We're just going back to systems that already exist. We had a conversation with Mitch, um, who, we've had, who, we've had, who we have had on the podcast, and he was talking about how on grazing land you can have about as many sheep as you do cows on that same land. So I think we can diversify, but it just takes a lot of yeah, change the mindsets of where people are. Yeah, and it, it's super tricky because I had a conversation about this uh, today with uh, with some some folks at were uh, in Utah. And I uh, went to the Department of Ag and, and for a conversation about some of the work that we do. And it was interesting because you know we were we were talking about this, and it's like it's maybe unfamiliar to consumers, right? But a if the price point was there, if duck was cheaper than beef, then you know maybe we'd choose duck. And also, it's sort of like if that was what ava- was what was available, and I don't know, it'd be an interesting experiment to do. If you, you know, during the pandemic, all the meat shelves were empty, right? Let's say if there's no more beef, but there is duck, maybe people would be like, well, I'll just try to pick up some of that, right? So it's also availability. And I always jokingly say, as Europeans, we've been we've been hungry a lot in the past. Uh, so I think that's why we're also have diversified our food more because you know we. Yeah, at some point we had to eat whatever we could. Yeah, it's interesting too because I, I've talked about this and I've actually heard directly from beef ranchers that, you know, if you actually want to make the most amount of money as a rancher, you should ranch goats because, I mean, there's the diversity in the United States. There's a whole entire sphere of people and, and there's not a lot of access to it. Same with lamb. I mean, all 95% of our lamb, I just made that up, but I'm assuming it's coming from New Zealand, it's, it's gotta be at least 90 plus percent and whole foods here in, in Salt Lake. I was like floored when I saw them starting to carry Colorado lamb. And I was like, awesome. I'm going to keep buying this. So like, yeah, good. Cause if you keep buying it, we'll keep carrying it. Yeah. So that's like driving consumer change right there. And yeah, it's great to diversify the nutrient profile. Um, but yeah, I know you're talking about Yellowstone talking about bison you said two days ago your paper on, on bison just got published. Maybe tell us a little bit about what exactly you guys researched there because this is something 
I heard you speak about in January at the National Bison Association Winter Conference, and it was really exciting stuff. Yeah, so we had uh, we did work with the Turner Ranches. The Turner Ranches are the largest bison owners in the in the country, and um, we did a controlled study with them. So basically, the entire herd was raised in uh, uh, the foothills of Nebraska on native rangelands. Bison were grazed there for what was probably about 20 months or so, and just just on pasture, they walked through a chute. Half of them walked into a feedlot, the other half walked back out of the pasture. So they were randomized. Then the uh, animals were finished there for 130 something days or so. Uh, I think it was 136 or so, don't quote me on it. Um, and the animals were then harvested, and we took 20 steaks. 20 different animals and we profiled it using metabolomics and we really went all out on that study because we used four pieces of equipment and looked at 1500 compounds so um but what was interesting and just a little bit of the background on it is that yeah in general we saw we saw two things and the title of the paper will give it away because it's something like pasture finishing of bison improves uh the nutritional qualities of meat and animal metabolic health so those are the two things we saw better nutrition meat nutritional quality more nutrient dense and animal metabolic health was also improved. So the animals at, uh, that were finished out on pasture had better glucose metabolic health, their mitochondria were better, they had less oxidative stress, uh, they had less lipid peroxidation, and uh, their meat was richer in phytochemicals and, and uh, I think uh, vitamin B3. And, but here becomes a nuanced piece of this. Is that what the Turner ranchers do in their feedlots? It's like feedlot light. It's not representative of the rest of mm. the of the industry. Probably not representative of the rest of the bison industry, but also not representative of the beef industry. Yeah. So their bison are in loose confinement. They have about I think about four times more space than usual, and they have a free choice of corn, alfalfa hay, or meadow hay. And meadow hay was basically just the hay from the. Uh, pasture that they were on. So they could self-regulate their intake. It was surprising to see that they still chose like 50-60% corn, but okay, maybe it's not that surprising because it tastes like candy to them, right? If you put children out on a buffet with french fries and peas, yeah. it's probably better if they ate some peas, but they'll probably eat the french fries, right? So uh, animals not that different. And uh, But what we found was is that yes, there was a difference, but the difference was more subtle than we find in grain, spreading grain-fed beef. And because here, to give you the overview, this is telling, the omega-6 to 3 ratio of the pasture-finished bison was 1.7, but of the feedlot-finished bison was 3. So still pretty darn good. So, um, and the phytochemicals were about two times, uh, two and a half times as high, 2.3 times, but not like 10 times, right? Um, so, but what we saw there clearly was, okay, you know, finishing bison on, on native pastures. Yeah, I mean, we, we know bison do better. And that's also the reason why the, why the turners do that. Because, you know, they have dry tight confinement. It's very stressful for the bison because they're still semi-wild. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show, like, we've, yeah, semi-wild, been domesticated for, I don't know, 50 to 100 years, probably depending on, on the ranch. But, yeah, they're, they're far more resilient, which to me is, like, the biggest takeaway. It's like, even if you grain finish them they're better than probably what 99% of, of grass fed beef operation. I mean, maybe it gets tricky, but it's just interesting to, uh, yeah, but we are following up that study and we're doing a tight confinement. Total oh, tight confinement. Okay. Tight confinement total mixed ration, which is more common in the industry. And I'm sure we will 
see some worsening of uh, the omega-6 to 3 profiles and, and potentially animal metabolic health. So we're going to follow that study up with a bunch of different arms. And this is one that I'm particularly excited about. One thing that we're doing there is finishing on pasture with free choice access to grain. I want to see nice. what happens with, uh, if, we, if they're 100% grass fed or, uh, I don't know, 90% grass fed or something. Does that make a difference? Because I think, you know, some of the nutrients were higher in the, in the grain finished animals. So maybe they put weight on more easily. So, yeah, um, do you know how the big the difference was in terms of weight of the animal of like the the confinement, close confinement they, they were choice? They, yeah, they were happier because they were all slaughtered at the same time. Um, I think it was maybe like it's a twenty eight months or so. But the carcass, the, they were they were lighter, lighter carcasses. Mm -hmm. um, but okay, or you know, and here's so again becomes the nuance. It's like are you putting on quality weight, or are you just putting on more fat? And then unfortunately, a lot of the fat ends up on the floor of the abattoir as well. So unless we are so using that for you know things like tallow or stuff like that, right? That, and and that, that's another point. But um, yeah, that's another. You know, we had a discussion about this last week. I was at a National Cattlemen's Association conference, and that's one of the things that came up. It's like you're really fattening up these animals. Do they need to? put on this much fat, especially if we're just wasting it on the abattoir. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. But something you kind of made me aware of is in January was that actually typical of the bison industry is that, well, first off, I didn't know that two thirds of the industry is, is bulls um, sold for meat, which is, you know, obviously way, way, way higher than beef. And um, the bulls are so lean that a lot of them, they feed lot for over 50% of their lives, right? Yeah, they can be in the feedlot for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, they can be, uh, I think, sometimes up to a year or so. Yeah, so, and uh, th so the study that we did, grass fed and grain fed, the grain fed wasn't per, per se super representative of the industry. So we need to follow that work up uh, to see what, uh, yeah. But but again, we, we, we still find a benefit for the animals out on pasture. I mean, they're healthier, they have less oxidative stress. Uh, yeah, they just look better overall, and 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 their nutritional quality. At least, at least, you know, I'm looking at it from a metabolic standpoint, right? Like taste. Uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, I've tried them both, and I I, I ate them both, and they're, they're pretty good. Uh, I like bison actually. Uh, like I eat probably eat more bison meat than beef. So I, if we could get more bison in the U.S., I think that would be a good thing because, as you mentioned, bison they are unique. They can dig through a feet of snow, and they can do well on low quality forages. They don't hang out at at, at riparians or water areas as much uh, probably in our, some of these harsher environments here on the, on the Great Plains or in Northern Utah probably makes more sense to raise some more bison to, to raise the, the native large ruminant right maybe that makes sense I yeah, mean yeah I kind of figured it out how to survive here right and, and, and to give you like another example I was at a talking to a farmer in, uh, in, in Southern Utah and, and you know raising black angus in the desert but that's pretty, he was irrigating his pastures at like something ridiculous. I can't remember what it was, a couple hundred gallons a minute through the entire grazing season. And I was just thinking like, this is probably not something that we can do still in 20 years with Colorado River drying up. And so it, it comes back to, instead of trying to fit the landscape to the animals, we could probably better fit the animals to the landscape. And in out west, I think, yeah, having goats grazing a bunch of mm -hmm. forbs and shrubs, which we have a lot of here. Yeah, that's absolutely a better idea, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's, you know, it's a little more effort. You know, the bison probably maybe require more infrastructure, fencing. I mean, it's different management style. You know, they can't really be fully herded. You know, if they get out, it's complicated. But 
you know, it's, they're more resilient. So you probably have higher yields making it from, from birth to slaughter. Um, there's less inputs needed and they do better on lower quality forage. Plus it's a premium product right now. And the numbers to me, just what blew my mind earlier this year is like, yeah, there's like 200,000 bison being ranch or maybe 300,000 now. I mean, there's like 150,000 beef cows or cattle that are slaughtered a day. So it's not even, it's such a small fraction. It's, it's, it's mind blowing, but, um, you've also tested venison, right? So I want to ask, you know, the wrap up the nutrient density comparisons, like how did the bison phytochemicals compare to the beef and, and how did like the venison you've tested? Like I'm assuming they're higher phytochemicals for the more wild, the animal, but is, is that what you saw? That's what we saw. But so we tested meat from uh, Maui Nui venison, and they're up in Hawaii, and they are grazing very biodiverse native uh, mountain ranges. So we do know that mountain pastures are amongst the most phytochemically rich pastures, probably because they're less touched by us. So right. Um, so we found that the phytochemicals in that meat was about uh, twice as high than the average grass-fed beef. One and and the bison they were about as like you know amongst the highest of the grass-fed beef ones, but the venison was was higher than that even. Um, here's what we don't know: it was in a different ecosystem, so it could be, and, and we kind of know this a little bit just from you know ecology studies is that yeah, venison from the Midwest that you know is heavily farmed right, and they're consuming some core or, or some you know. Uh, Grains, yeah, grains indeed from uh, uh, that are harvested. So perhaps they are not looking as phytochemically rich. So I do think that we can probably get there with good management, mimic wild ruminants, but you probably have to be more of a steward of, of your grasses and your plants than uh, of the animal, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Such a, I mean, we're kind of coming up on time for this room. We're probably going to get kicked out, but it's okay. It's for the audience. But uh, I, I mean, there's so many things that, I'm, my mind has been blown like this whole time. I know Tristan's told me about you and some of your research and especially the amino acid profile. I'm going to throw you a real softball sure. right here. Was there anything that you, out of your research doing this with the bison and sort of the, the wild ruminants and even the beef that surprised you the most as far as like something you weren't expecting? Because I, I think logically speaking, you could assume that something that is fed on its natural diet would have a better profile nutritionally but was there something that stood out to you they weren't expecting well yeah the, the magnitude of differences the difference were bigger than i had expected and it was one of those aha moments down the road where you're like oh it makes sense like for instance advanced glycation and lipoxidation end products AGEs, ales they are part of the reason why the, the world cancer research funds considers red meat a potential question engine now again that becomes a nuanced discussion whether that's truly the case but okay let's accept that that is the case um, we find lower amounts of these in uh, grass-fed animals. And then you think about it, advanced glycation end products, glycation coming from glucose. So if the animal has poor glucose metabolic health, it has more AGEs. We see that in humans that are diabetic. So why would we not expect to see that in a cow? But this was completely not on my mind. Like when we saw the data initially, I was like, these advanced glycation end products are lower. You know, and I had a couple of aha moments like that as well. And another thing was saturated fat, for instance. We talked a lot about omega-3 fatty acids. Mm -hmm. We think, oh, red meat provides saturated fat, therefore it's not good for you. 
The total saturated fat between grass-fed and grain-fed might not always be different, but the individual saturated fatty acids are different. We see more of a shift towards these longer-chain mm-hmm. saturated fatty acids that are in epidemiological studies either neutral or perhaps associated with a decreased risk of metabolic disease. So the saturated fat is another thing is where you can kind of get a you know more favorable shift in, in the saturated fatty acids. And I think that's also not really known with the, with consumers. So yeah, that was also kind of surprising to me. So, and then there were a few moments like that where I was like, oh, now that we look at 1500 compounds, yeah, there was a lot of things that weren't on my radar as well. Yeah. yeah I remember we talked about that last time and I almost forgot about that. It's, I think it's astounding that, you know, people really need to start thinking more granular. It's not just, you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids have been demonized in the health community. Um, from what I've seen, you know, it's like you can't even touch poofus with a 10 foot pole now, but it's like the nuance is, is there. Saturated fat is there. Um, it, it's there everywhere. So that, I think it's important to become educated on this. So appreciate all your insight here. But my last question is, and we kind of talked a little bit about this before, you know, what, what are your insights from doing this? You're, you're working with a lot of, you know, producers, big corporations. You're saying, you know, Hey, your, your meat is nutrient dense. It's, it's maybe less. So what, what was the response from some of these people? Do you think there's a shift, you know, a meaningful shift happening towards more pasture raised towards more grass fed after shedding light on some of this for the producers, for the big companies? Like what's the response been? I think the response is generally very positive because a lot of, you know, the industry is realizing that something needs to change. What exactly is the change? You know, is some of the questions, but even in sort of the beef industry, yeah, there's this, you know, it's, it's under a lot of pressure for uh, environmental impacts mm-hmm. as well as human health impacts. So something needs to happen. I think that's clear in, in many industries. And I was surprised to, to learn that a lot of, you know, big producers are, are open to this and are willing to, uh, yeah, go into that shift. And, and, and of course, I mean, we must be realistic. You have to protect the bottom line, right? Uh, yeah, we, you know, as a big company, if you switch everything over to pasture-based and your uh, chicken flies off the shelf for, for, you know, twice as much money, I mean, you have to make some sort of uh, business decisions there. So I can appreciate that. But um, it's also clear is that because there's a bigger consumer interest in that and sort of, you know, a bigger sort of top-down uh suggestion about that, you know, like climate reports from the IPCC, which talks extensively about, okay, sort of agroecology, locally adapted herbivores, uh, more integrated systems, right? Those are some of the things that are uh, opportunities in the animal source food industry. And you see that bigger companies are starting to latch onto that. So, um, yeah, I'm positive about like uh, the way that, uh, that, that we are moving. Um, and it's it's always one of those things, yeah, when, you know, the right thing to do becomes the most profitable thing, then everyone would do it, right? So, and that has always been historically be the case when we sort of, you know, talked about efficiency and yield. That, yeah, it made sense, those policies 30, 40 years ago. But now we need to produce that in a way that we can hopefully still do it in 100 years from now and without uh, putting too much pressure, without without messing up our planet, essentially. Yeah, I think that's the mindset that everyone needs to have. But I mean, I want to thank you because I feel like your research is really opening up a new frontier of, you know, discussion and, and value here. Like that, to me, this is like the missing piece. Like I, I was writing my book. I kind of had the same, 
issue that Diana and Rob did. I mean, again, they had such a fantastic resource out there, but it's like they were missing really some of the research that, that you've shed light on. And it's, it's fantastic to have this now, you know, producers have even more incentive to do it the right way because they can come to you and I, you are still taking samples, right? For beef or right for yeah. nutrient density analysis. Yeah, totally. so. We kind of like expanded upon this uh, too. And like we've been increasing our, uh, uh, you know, we've done a lot of chicken nut testing as well. We've recently, I got contacted by a big bone broth producer that, uh, uh, to kind of start testing bone broth. We've never done it, but I'm kind of excited about it to, to do that and see, you know, are there differences in grass fed or regenerative grass fed beef bones versus feedlot bones. And, and things like that so yeah it's definitely uh growing and yeah we're still accepting uh i mean i, I hopefully we can uh you know there's still so much to be learned i mean it's been probably a lifetime uh studying yeah. this and then uh move the needle a little bit but uh yeah no it's it's amazing so if you're a producer listening to this i mean you can you know what is the website called again to it is if you uh look if you google beef nutrient density project You'll, uh, you'll find a link uh, to do that. And also, honestly, if you, if you Google my name, uh, then you could probably find my, uh, my email as well okay. and, and get in touch with me so uh, they can reach out directly or look at the Beef Nutrient Density Project. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think it's something that, you know, I, it's, it's an expense for producers, but it's probably the one that's worth getting because really it's incentivizing them to do it the right way. And if they're already doing it the right way, now they have this proof that yeah we do have extremely nutrient dense meat and yeah, exactly and that's always one of the things i know it's not easy and and we have to be very careful of that you know like sort of the, the fda now clamping down on like health claims that you can make and i agree we do have to be very careful with that but you know something as simple as like label putting an omega six to three ratio on packages right that, that's 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 pretty basic because if i buy salmon in the grocery store it tells me 750 milligrams of DHA and EPA mm -hmm. per serving can be on there. Why could we not put like on grass-fed beef packages perhaps at some point, hopefully, omega-6 to 3 ratio of 3 to 1. That would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, just more information for the consumer, but probably some added cost for the producer or whoever, but that, that's how it goes. So just wrapping up here, you know, this show is called Decentralized Radio, and, and you've touched upon a lot of principles of decentralization, why it matters, buying local. I'm curious in general, how do you see the value of decentralization from the food system perspective, and, and how are you personally embodying that or trying to become more decentralized? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a role for both. I mean, we're living in a capitalistic society, so there's going to be a centralized food system and, and decentralized food systems as well. So, I mean, it is great that we can buy mangoes uh, here. I mean, you know, that's uh, from, from South America. At least I like eating mangoes. But anyway, uh, the decentralization part, I think, is key. Like getting connected again with your farmer, buying locally, keeping uh, uh, sort of, you know, Supporting the local ecosystem, having stewardship of your local ecosystem, keeping the money in the farmer's pockets, right? And yeah, for me personally, yeah, I do buy, at least, I mean, we're in Utah, so there's not always uh, fresh produce during the winter months, but yeah, in the summer I buy everything at farmer's markets and my meat and milk. Yeah, I buy that always from, uh, from local producers. We have a, a dairy 20 minutes uh, up, up north from where I live, and yeah, I always buy by milk, we have we have a big milk group. Actually, after this, I'm going to a Walmart parking uh, lot 
up in Logan. And uh, luckily it wasn't my turn this week, but someone else went to get dairy. And then um, in, in, the, in, the, in the Walmart parking lot, we, uh, we uh, exchanged uh, money for, uh, for milk. So. That's amazing. Hopefully no feds are listening to this, but no, it's scary. Okay. We're, we're clear then, we're good. but yeah. that's good. Keeping with those Dutch roots. That's, that's amazing. So awesome. Stefan, it's been a pleasure. People can find you at Twitter at Stefan Van Fleet, correct? And then Van Fleet and, um, new beef nutrient density project, right? And anything else sites, the paper, the bison paper is now published. And you can find it online. Yeah, if you type in uh, pasture finishing of bison and, and my name, uh, it, it will come up uh, right away. But awesome. Luckily for me, there's not many papers on bison. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try and link that in the show notes if we get that figured out how to do all that. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much.